0: Welcome to the wildlife experience. This is your host, Andrew Austin. In this episode, I interview my good friend, Lark Heston. Lark is a biologist that works for NEON in Tennessee, uh, which is a really cool, um, organization. And she talks all about it. Uh, we cover, um, everything from plant ecology to birding, to various conservation topics um, her experiences getting into the field of wildlife biology, uh, from, from her childhood up into, into her undergrad and, and her seasonal, uh, technician jobs, um, and then grad school. And, and now she is that neon. Um, so we, we covered a whole lot. It was a really good time talking to Lark. Um, listening back, I, I can tell I was a little rusty. <laughs> um, thankfully Lark, is uh, really a natural at this stuff. And she really carried the conversation. Um, so it was overall really good. Thanks to Lark. Um, on my end, I, I took a month off and, and, and I felt really rusty um, listening back. Um, and the audio audio quality was a little low. Um, I'm in a, a wide open house right now. I, I moved um, and I don't have any interior doors and there's no carpet or anything. It's It's really echoey. And I feel like that reduced the audio quality on my end. Um, but uh, aside from that, I think you guys will really enjoy it. Uh, so now I bring you Lark Heston. All right. I'm here with Lark Heston. Lark, thank you so much for being here.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. So uh, we've been talking about this for a little while. And uh, finally, we're able to meet up over Zoom. Um, we, we actually know each other. And uh, so we can start out. By going over um, how we met initially. It's kind of a fun story uh, for people Mm -hmm. to hear about. Um, So we can go ahead and start with that.
1: Yeah. So I had just moved to High Island, Texas for a seasonal job with the Houston Audubon Society. And it was straight out of college. And I didn't really know anybody in Texas. So I messaged a friend, Trent, from my college. And he was out in Arizona. So I figured maybe Trent knows somebody out West. I kind of figured Texas was really far West. Then when you move to Texas, you find out everybody thinks it's the South, right? (laughs) So (laughs) I talked to Trent and he said he didn't know anybody, um, in Houston, but he knew this guy, Micah that lived somewhere in Texas. I think it was Austin. And so I messaged Micah, this is all over Instagram messaged Micah. And he said he didn't live, near high island but he knew a guy named andrew who did live in houston so then on instagram i messaged andrew and what did we do we hung out um with my coworkers, workers yep. and bryce to go herping outside of high island and yep. we got like almost 30 individual snakes of like six species or yep. something like that
0: pretty, it was pretty, awesome. typical, pretty typical for that area at that time of year
1: for you, I never was <laughs> successful. When we went out by ourselves after that, we are like, how does Andrew do this?
0: <laughs> well, so that's how a lot of uh, social media friendships start is, yeah, you know, you know a friend of a friend and mm-hmm. here we are, we've been friends for like three or four years now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that was 33 and, three and a half years ago.
0: So you're at High Island um, for a year.
1: Yeah, it was nine months, but pretty much a year. Yeah, I skipped the summer, which was
0: nice. And we're going to cover everything about High Island at some point. But it was it was because you finished there, and around that time I was transferring, and I actually like I had zero confidence with school, and I asked. I remember asking you, you and Marie, Marie, right? Maria. Maria, uh, like questions about like what classes I should take and like all this stuff. Yeah, that's right. I was like super nervous, and I was like, well, maybe I'll go to A and (laughs) M. And and at some point you were like, I'm gonna go to grad school at AM. And yeah. So, you're,
1: <laughs> and our paths you're like crossed my only again. friend
0: at AM. And we got to, <laughs> I got to be your, your undergraduate research assistant.
1: Yeah, that was awesome.
0: I'm you so thankful that. for that. You predicted that. I remember we were talking about how you might go to grad school at AM. And you're like, you just said it in a fun way. You're like, hey, you could be my assistant.
1: <laughs> and it happened. And yeah, that's awesome.
0: it was a lot of fun. Um, but let's let's back up. So You went to school, uh, well, before school, Uh, you got Mm -hmm. into wildlife at some point. You decided you wanted to study wildlife.
1: Out of the womb. I've always been (laughs) interested in wildlife and nature. And I've always just had like, my mom has all these stories that I was too young to remember, but her being like, there was a baby bird in the road and I just went up and picked it and like carried it to the tree. Or like, I do remember one time we were in this bay uh in California and I just saw a fish in the water. It was really shallow. And I just reached down and picked it up and I carried it to my mom. And I was like, mom, I caught a fish. And she was like, Who are you? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> so just little, you know, little things like that. I feel like a lot of biologists have similar, it's just in our genes. Yeah. I don't know how else to explain it. Um, but yeah, and then So so mostly I'm interested, I don't want to say mostly, but kind of mostly I'm interested in birds. And I got into that in sixth grade um, when my mom bought me a pair of binoculars and I had these bird books and I would watch the birds in the backyard. And that's kind of when I became a bird watcher. And then it wasn't until college that I got more into it and started calling myself a birder instead of a bird watcher
0: you probably had no idea there was a, like a, a birding community and it was like a very, serious- no,
1: I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I, I had a little, um, nature journal. I like wrote on the front of this journal, nature journal, and I would make little observations every day and everything.
0: That's how herping was for me. I, I just, I call it snake hunting. I just went out and caught snake.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> course,
0: Steve Irwin was my outlet for that mainly. Did you, did you watch mm-hmm. Steve?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Steve Irwin and Jeff Corwin yeah. and kind of just an assortment of Animal Planet and Discovery Channel shows. Yeah. Um, yeah, my one childhood incident with a snake was I found a snake that I think had been run over on a greenway by a bike, probably. And I thought I was in fourth grade and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. So I brought it to school and I was like, look, everybody, here's a snake. And this one girl called me a rabies girl. Oh I was like, you can't even say that you can't get rabies from snakes. And then after that, I think I kind of shied away from snakes.
0: Yeah. So then, yeah, at some point you're, you're going to go to college. What do you study and study biology? Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I actually, I went to Eckerd college mm-hmm. and when I was going there, I thought I was going for marine biology. That was my original Degree plan. Um, but this within three nice. days.
0: A lot of What's people that? do that. A lot of people they, yeah. they wanted to study biology, they they immediately want to do marine biology so they can work with dolphins and, and whales and stuff.
1: Well, so for me, I think it was mostly that in high school, I thought that was the only way to do field biology. Yeah. I didn't know that there's so many other so areas of study fun. that need to be done. Yeah. So I went for marine bio and I think the usual story of people who leave marine biology is they leave within the first like year or two but I was at Eckerd for three days and before classes even started I was like I miss the mountains (laughs) I don't want to do marine biology and so I immediately switched to biology and then um and environmental studies
0: yeah and and while you were there, you got to do a lot of cool. That, Eckerd being such a small school, you got to do a lot of cool um, field research as an undergrad. Oh my
1: gosh. I love how it's a liberal arts college, and there were only about 1,800 students when I was there, and it was all undergrad, no grad program. Um, and I loved that because the professors actually, I mean, the professors, you know, in all colleges and universities care, but when it's such a small school, you can really get a better connection with them. And I had a great connection with all of my professors. Um, So one of the biggest things of research that we did was with Dr. Peter Malin. And he does a freshwater turtle research trip multiple times a semester, every semester. And he's been doing it since the 1990s. And it's like, it's a huge long-term, we get turtles that so it's a mark and recapture study we get turtles that were captured in the 90s like there are turtles that are caught that are older than the students catching them Um, yeah it's so crazy it's real and they're small too i mean some of them are cooters but some of them are loggerhead musk turtles and mud turtles and um what else do we get softshell turtles and uh i think florida snapping turtle
2: um, alligator, alligators,
1: alligator, yeah, 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 alligator, snapping turtle, um, but yeah, there's it's just such a huge data set, it's pretty amazing, and the research is really fun too. Um, so I guess I, I'll talk about how it happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what the kind of day a day in Rainbow Run is like is you get up at seven a.m everybody meets and carpools 2 hours north to Ocala where there's a river called Rainbow River um we you have of course permits and uh you go snorkeling and you have to have this flag that says Eckerd College so people know that you're doing research and you're not just catching hundreds of turtles for the fun of it <laughs> um although it is very fun and so you snorkel upriver I think about like a kilometer or so, or maybe it's half a kilometer and then half a kilometer back. I can't remember. Um, but you're snorkeling for a couple hours upstream against the current. And uh, it's about 70, 72 degree water. So it's wetsuit water.
0: The spring spring fed um, river then. Yeah. It's a
1: spring. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's a spring fed river. So it's crystal clear. It gets really deep at some points, like deeper than I can dive down to um a lot of the people there are really good swimmers and free divers so they can go to the bottom no problem but I never did in the deepest parts and you can see straight down to the bottom even in the deepest areas and it's just gorgeous the grass like flows in the wind like it does Mm -hmm. in the prairies it's so beautiful and you can go yeah exactly it's like a water yeah an underwater prairie Um, but so you're, the goal is to catch the turtles and you're doing this just by swimming upstream. And when you see a turtle, you take off after it. And these turtles have evolved to escape predators by swimming very quickly away. (laughs) So uh, you're often swimming as fast as you can, which is slower than a turtle and, chasing it through that grass so you can't see where you're going you're just going through grass kind of blind and eventually catching the turtle trying to not let it bite you and for some of the people that would go after the snapping turtles and the soft shell turtles like getting them out of the water over their head to pass onto the boat is that's a whole <laughs> other feat. <laughs> like, <laughs> I physically don't think I could pick up those snapping turtles out of the water. They're huge. They're so huge. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So then we take a bunch of data on them.
0: Um, it's that's really fun field work compared to the turtle work I've done.
1: <laughs> amazing. <laughs> the,
0: the turtle work I've done sucked. <laughs>
1: What was it? It was was the prairie pothole. Yeah, I
0: was out there in the prairie. It's hot, and you're hiking. It looked beautiful. Oh, it's beautiful. The biodiversity is amazing, but yeah, spring-fed river, and it's not snorkeling. You know, that's true. (laughs) That's very true. y'all collect all this data, um, and you you turned some of that into an undergrad research thesis.
1: Yeah. So it actually before I even did it as my thesis, it started as my semester project for the herpetology class that I took, took with Dr. Malin. And um, it, it kind of just started as a really like basic, let's see what's happening with the reproductive biology of the loggerhead musk turtles. And so part of the data that we take is um, gathering a subsample of what we think is the mature loggerhead musk turtles, which is just based on shell size. And we take them to the local vet clinic and they um, take x-rays of the turtles for us. And they actually like teach us how they do and everything. So we're like part of the process the whole time, which is really fun. Yeah. And um, so they take the x-rays and then they had a really old x-ray machine because it's a small rural town. And so we'd sit and hang out for a little bit while the x-rays were printing, I guess. I don't really know the right word for that, but we get the x-rays right after taking them and get to put it up on the screen and see like which turtles had eggs in them. And you can also see, so the turtles eat a lot of snails and they have super powerful jaws. So they're crunching up the shells and you can see the bits of shells that are running like through their, their gut.
0: That's cool. Yeah. And there's, so uh there's not a lot of probably not a lot of research on musk turtles right so it's um there's there's not
1: recently most of the studies that i ended up finding um were from like the 60s 70s yeah a lot there's a researcher named um i can't remember his first name but his last name is i think john john iverson okay and iverson has done a lot of uh musk turtle i think he's done other species too yeah. but musk turtle research but not as far south of the latitude gotcha. as our study site so his stuff was mostly up in like the um midwest and northern florida
0: yeah. and what exactly what you're you're looking at with the reproductive biology
1: so it was kind of a mishmash of a lot of little things we were looking at what time of year they had eggs yeah. which was a little bit dependent on our sampling periods but we sampled pretty much from late summer to the next early summer
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and it turns out based off of our study and other studies that uh they go through a quiescent period so they're just not reproducing in midsummer anyway yeah. so we didn't really lose out on any data of that but um like timing of ovulation and everything, and how many eggs on average? How large were the eggs on average? Um, like what size was the turtle when it had eggs? Okay. Uh, we got a lot of recapture data too, which was really interesting. So with the recap data, we could see how many times the turtle was gravid, which means it had eggs, and Um, how close those two different, uh, sets of eggs were to each other, like timing wise throughout the Mm -hmm. year. Um, there's so many other things I could keep going.
0: Did any of the females have multiple clutches in a year?
1: We only had a couple like that. Uh, usually it would, usually our recapture rates weren't so frequent that we could really see that. Um, cause you catch one turtle and you won't catch it for another three or four years.
0: The nature of mark, mark recapture. We,
1: mm-hmm, yeah. And so I did have one, um, turtle that was gravid in December. And I think they go through a full clutch, like, like creation to, to laying them within, I want to say like six weeks or so. I'd have to look at the data again. It's been so long. Um, but then in sometime in January, it had another clutch. Okay. And at first cool. I just thought like, oh, that's the same clutch. But then Dr. Malin told me like, no, that is one clutch that's gone through and she's already grabbed it again in the next month.
0: Gotcha.
1: Yeah. So it does happen.
0: Was that the, is that the only Mark recapture study you've been involved with?
1: Um, no. So after I graduated undergrad, I did a summer internship at the Great Smoky Mountains, uh, Institute at Tremont. It's a very long name. We just call it Tremont. It's an environmental education center. And I did bird banding, okay. which is another form of mark recapture study.
0: For people that don't know, do you want to, do you want to describe the value of mark recapture? There's, there's so much you can talk about with that. Uh, yeah. It's a, <laughs> that it's could a, it's be a, a very basic, uh, Uh, way that biologists can really understand wildlife populations. Right.
1: Right. So if you're capturing an individual and not marking it, you really only have the data for, for one point in time. And you can like part of my study does kind of extrapolate different individuals over their lifetime. And you can kind of say like, this is what, happens to individuals over a lifetime when you look at a whole population but the best way to get like actual data is to look at that individual at multiple points throughout its life uh, and the only way to do that for a lot of it i guess it depends on the taxa but oftentimes the only way to do that or the best way is to mark it and then go back out later and recapture it right
0: And so birds, it's, it's band it's bands mainly Mm -hmm. with turtles. They can mark shells. Um, uh, but a lot of species, they have to use pit tags.
1: So with our turtle research, we, um, mark the shell by it sounds gruesome if you haven't done it, but it's like a more intense ear piercing. It's almost like a gauge, but it's not in their ear. It's on their shell because their ear is not like ours. Uh, so their shell on the outside, kind of where the plastron and the carapace meet, like the bottom and the top meet, yeah, it kind of folds out a little bit. So you can drill a hole through that connection. And it's Ceratin. just, epidermis. just a little bit of Yeah, it's just keratin. So it's not like it's going through muscle or tendons or anything like that. Um, but we, get pit, we pit tag them as well yeah. because with both methods it could go away like the turtle shell could get damaged and right. you won't be able to read the code um or the pit tag could fall out and then you won't know that you've ever
0: caught it right that was a that was a weird thing for me uh when i was doing the turtle work we would we would mark the shells with a little like file and, and oh yeah oh, i mentioned this before in an earlier episode but like when I was doing my wildlife education at zoos and stuff, I'd always tell people never like turtle shells can like turtles can feel on their shell and you should never like drill a hole in it and like put them on a leash or anything. I, I don't know. I've heard old zoos used to do that. And then oh, I'm really? out there doing turtle research and I'm grinding on shells.
1: Yeah. And you're doing, yeah, I <laughs> know. drilling holes. <laughs> yeah, we
0: use a tiny little drill bit and drill holes to mark. Mm-hmm.
1: Their- yeah. That's their- what we would do as well. Yeah. But it depends on the size of the turtle, too, because with our loggerhead musk turtles, there's not enough of, like, a lip to
0: drill through. Um, Did you all use a file?
1: We didn't file them. We just pit tagged them.
0: Okay. You just pit tagged. I got you. Yeah. Well, so that research you did got published, finally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I've been very excited about that all day Um, because I found out that it got published in january but Mm -hmm. it hadn't been published yet it got out in the march issue so i haven't officially been able to like see the pdf with the date on it until recently what journal uh the biological society no the biological journal of the linnean society (laughs) (laughs) yeah it is a mouthful and i read on their website that this journal is a descendant journal of the one that Charles Darwin published in.
0: That's bad. Which
1: is really cool. That's really, bad <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. That's really
0: neat. Yeah. That, that's yeah. For, for a biologist to, to, to get their first publication for people listening, that's, that's a big deal. Yeah.
1: yeah, it's huge. And honestly, I would not have been able to do it without my advisor, Dr. Malin and my other professor, Dr. Gessling. Like, Doing the thesis was one thing. That was a project I could handle, but publishing that was a whole nother thing that if I didn't have their help, it just would not
2: happen. Peer review.
1: Yeah, the the whole peer review process and even getting to that point, because my thesis was 40 pages with citations and figures and to get it published, nobody's going to want to sit there and read a 40 page paper. You can't fit that into journals, even when they're online. So we had to narrow it down and I think it ended up being like 12 pages or something along those lines. So figuring out what the most important parts and which figures were the most important, that was harder than writing the first paper altogether.
0: It sounds like it could have been a master's thesis.
1: Oh, I probably could have turned it into one. (laughs) I could have pulled more data. Yeah. There's, Honestly, I wish more people would use, if anybody out there is in Florida or just wants to work with the rainbow run data, seriously, there's so much that can be done with it because there's nine species of turtles that live it just in that one little stretch of river that we swim
0: through. And 30 Um, 30 years worth of data.
1: yeah, Yeah. There's just so much you can do.
0: Yeah.
1: And there has been, um, publications throughout the years and a couple ones recently some from some of my friends so that's pretty cool but there can always be more
0: have you, have you returned to rainbow run yet
1: no the last time i went was the summer after i graduated gotcha. um yeah it's been a, a few years i really want to go back though
0: yeah i want to go
1: <laughs> you should i worked for the you turtle work.
0: job i had he, he worked with dr malin
1: Yes, the,
0: Brandon. Yeah, yeah.
1: I know that was Heard so crazy when I found out that I was in a class with him and I was talking about my research, and he, or maybe he was talking about the research. And I, both of us were like, "Wait a second, we sound <laughs> like we're talking about the same person." It was Dr. Malin.
0: But this is a good segue into. Uh, so you, you uh, after your undergrad, you went to uh, Tremont. Tremont, but eventually ended up doing graduate school. At a Yeah. W- yeah. We can actually say that. Let's talk about, do you, have, do you have more to say about Tremont? You mentioned it earlier.
1: Uh, Yeah, Tremont's a great place. Um, So Tremont is the Environmental Education Center, and it's in the Smoky Mountains. So when you work there, you get to live on site, and you're kind of the only people that get to live within the boundaries of the park, yeah. which is really cool. Um, and yeah, so I only spent the summer there. I was only okay. there for three months. Um, But we did all sorts of different things, mostly bird banding. Um, We did some salamander research. That's where I learned that salamanders, at least in the Smokies of a certain genus, or maybe a couple certain genera, climb trees and ferns Mm -hmm. at night. That blew my mind. When I went on this salamander survey at night with these researchers that came from Oklahoma or something, And we were just walking different transects throughout the park. And we saw like hundreds of salamanders. And you just see them like in little crevices between branches and on fern fronds and up on rocks and on tree, uh, not branches, but tree uh, trunks, just climbing up. It was so cool. Uh, So we just got to do a lot of really like magical Smoky Mountains. things like that we took campers on a canoe backpacking trip for a week and they were all in high school and we did snail studies with them just a lot of random really cool yeah Yeah, it was awesome
0: and the the salamander diversity was really the highlight of it it sounds like
1: yeah and the birds of course
0: some of the like the highest salamander diversity in the world my understanding yeah
1: yeah the salamander um hot spot
0: right that's cool and i I learned about the arboreal nature of those salamanders from you. I, the only salamanders I knew that climbed were the Baleedoglossid salamanders down in like Central and South America.
1: Yeah.
0: We had salamanders. I think they're like mostly plethodon yeah. salamanders that uh, mm-hmm. the lungless salamanders like climb trees and stuff. Maybe you're. you're yeah. Right.
1: There was yeah. one up on a um, a tree trunk that was probably 15 feet off the ground.
0: That's just incredible. Crazy. It was
1: crazy, and I think so. The reason they do it, I think, is because of food availability. I want to say it's easier to catch the food out there. It might have something to do with. um, I don't want to say it has something to do with mating because that could be wrong, but that might be part of it. But I think mostly it's a food, like a resource partitioning kind of thing. I got you. Um when it's safe to do that when it's humid and dark and there's not as many predators out and stuff.
0: Yeah. So you went straight to Tremont after graduating from Eckerd?
1: Yeah, pretty much immediately. And then after Tremont, I did a little month long road trip, uh, just visiting around the Eastern States to visit some friends and go hiking and camping and helping with some gopher tortoise research that my professor that i did the paper with um was doing yeah. and then after that i went to high island in texas
0: which is where we would eventually meet
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> thank god it was a,
0: uh th- that was a cool experience for you it seems like
1: amazing i wish that i had the money to buy a vacation home in that town right
0: Probably wouldn't cost you much. It's it's kind of a rundown. (laughs) If you're not a birder, you would never want to go there.
1: No. Yeah. Unless you grew up in that area or you're a birder, there's no reason you'd move to High Island. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it's, I don't even know how to describe it. I just love High Island so much. And the Mm -hmm. Houston Audubon Society is incredible like the people, even just like me and my coworkers and, and I've met future and past seasonal uh, technicians that worked for them and everybody's just amazing. Um, but yeah, so I guess I'll I'll talk about what I did there.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I was, my job title was a bird conservation technician. Uh, we mostly did. Okay. Well, in the fall, we mostly managed the, um, habitat for birds so we took out a lot of invasive privet and tallow so pretty much all fall we were chainsawing (laughs) all day long every day in the mosquitoes which if you've been to the everglades you know how bad the mosquitoes are that's high island in the fall yeah it's awful we had to wear mosquito nets over our heads all day long
0: so Uh, just a quick question. When you were yeah. envisioning a, a career as a biologist, did you think you'd be whacking privet? <laughs> no. Okay, well, in,
1: in college, I did do a trail maintenance job Perfect. and we did some invasive removals okay. and everything. So I had some experience with that, but I did not even going to that job. I had no idea what I was getting into and it okay. ended up being incredible, but So High Island is called, let me reverse for a second. High Island is called High Island, not because it's an actual island that we usually think of, but because it is on top of a geological formation, that's a salt dome that lifts the like crust of the earth up. Um, So a forest is able to grow where surrounding it is coastal marshland yeah. and it's on the coast of texas so the upper texas coast yeah. and so it's this like pocket of trees where everything else around it is marsh and now farms but you know not as many trees
0: it's very obvious um, too, when, you, when you come it's down super,
1: you can see you like yeah. drive up a hill to go to it and I you're know. like why am i on this hill everything else out here is flat yeah But I thought that I was going to like the desert, and I thought it was going to be a forest with desert around me. (laughs) I did not realize that not all of Texas was desert until I got there.
0: So it was just a total shock when you showed up. Yes, but it
1: was really cool,
0: like you're in Florida. On like it's not much different than than other parts of the southeast.
1: Mm -hmm, Exactly. Um, And then so so the fall we were doing. Chainsawing a lot. And then um in the spring is when the birds go to High Island and like on their migration route, yeah. which also means that's when the birders go to High Island. Yeah. And uh, it's an exaggeration, but there's probably as many birders as there are birds that go through High Island. There are hundreds of people that show up in this one little one mile. Square like one square mile town.
0: Now, now did you know about Highland prior to going?
1: No, I had really? never heard of it before. I just found it on the Texas um what is it called the, the wildlife
0: the AM job board. The
1: yeah Wild the AM job board. Yeah. yeah. And I had applied to it only a few weeks. I had applied to it while I was on my road trip. Okay. So I I had no idea anything about it.
0: So like you applied and like three weeks later, you're you're there. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs>
1: seasonal jobs get pretty uh, <laughs> desperate Honestly, for workers.
0: I wish I would have done the traditional uh, path where you like graduate high school, go straight to college, graduate three or four years, and then do seasonal jobs and then land a permanent position because that's a fun path to do the seasonal work.
1: It's a fun path, but I never
0: listen, got to do that. Too- You can do
1: seasonal work whenever you want. There's a guy that works for the job that I have now, Neon. Uh, He's up in Alaska and he's retired. He just does Neon seasonally every year for the fun of it. Yeah. So there's, it's never too late to go back and do fun seasonal jobs.
0: I don't know. I just, I'd always thought about doing it when I was like in high school, doing it like that. And I was like, I want to go to Alaska and all these places. And then I like finished my undergrad and I, a permanent job. Was waiting for me, so it was. Hard. Yeah, it was. Uh, just well, a you can't
1: experience. pass those opportunities
0: up. you know. A lot of I, in the field I of biology, like... a permanent job is cherished. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, like the most seasonal jobs do... are such a cool life experience, and and yeah, experience. that's true. And so but like, most
1: people do seasonal jobs because we're just kind of like waiting, right? To so get like the
0: high island experience for, for you, that must have been so cool to like reflect on that like just the memory of going to this bizarre place in Texas you thought was desert and you get there, yeah, it's not an Island in the desert. It's a, a Oak forest in the middle of a marsh and you spend nine months yeah. there doing bird work. It's really mm-hmm. a good experience.
1: It was so much fun. So when the birders are there, it's like chaos all the time, but so much fun because so there's different tracts of land. In the town that are preserved forests for the birds. Yeah. And Houston Audubon owns most of them. So when you have all these birders running around, finding all these migrants that are only gonna be there that day, especially some of the rarer species, you might only see one the entire time you're there. Yeah. Um, and these birds, I guess I should explain the whole migration and, and yeah, yeah, why yeah. there are yeah. so many birds. Yeah. So there's so many birds that go through High Island because it's situated, I don't know if it's the same longitude, but essentially it's situated north of the Yucatan Peninsula. And when the birds are migrating north for breeding in the spring and summer, um, a lot of them kind of like flood to the tip of the Yucatan and then they'll fly across the Gulf. So they'll get as far north over land as they can. And then they'll fly north um, over the Gulf. And because most of the upper Texas coast is marshland, that's not a whole lot of habitat or food availability for a lot of these birds, especially the ones that kind of require deeper forests. And so most of these birds flock to High Island and it's one square mile Mm -hmm. with thousands of birds that migrate through it um and 100%. fall migration is a little bit more scattered um fall migrants will spread out a little bit more there's not as much of a rush to go anywhere um it's it's a little bit more chill but spring migration they're trying to get the food first they're trying to get up north so that they can find the best breeding habitat and little uh territories that they've had year after year so that actually at Tremont um <clears throat> we found out through the um bird banding that a lot of these birds probably most of them go back to the exact same breeding area year after year like we will catch birds in the exact same net every year which is insane to me that these small little warblers that weigh like i don't even know how much but they fit in the palm of your hand can fly all the way to south america across the gulf come back across the Gulf and then go to the exact same spot where they bred the year before. It's crazy! It just blows my mind. Like birds are so cool. I'm even wearing my bird nerd shirt right now. Oh, I did that cool. specifically for this. Where did you get that? <laughs> yeah. What?
0: Where did you get that shirt?
1: Oh, my friend bought it for me. Oh, my friends buy me bird related. Ooh. They know
0: we, ha- we have to mention that you're, you're named after a bird. Several birds in fact.
1: (laughs) That yes, that that was coincidence.
0: People ask me if I get
1: into birding because of my name, and that's not. It just happened that way. What
0: which lark do you associate most with?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Probably it's probably because of the regionalness of it, but Eastern Meadowlark. Meadowlark, yeah. Yeah.
0: It's a, it's a vibrant, happy species,
1: <laughs> I know I love that I think
0: you I think you vibe with the meadowlark
1: I think so too. Thank I don't you. Know if you
0: can sing <laughs> as well as a meadowlark though they'd what's be, that no a song. I don't know if you can sing like a meadowlark
1: no, when I was little, <laughs> almost every adult would ask me if I could sing when I told them my name was lark really, and all my whole life, I've been like, no,'m yeah. i not it didn't go that far. <laughs>
0: So the, the migration is really cool and, um, people should go out and experience it. Mm-hmm. You know, like
1: Absolutely.
0: Anybody that just likes being outdoors. If, if you go to a place like high Island and you see, I've only done in spring migration two years now. Um, and when you see all these Orioles and warblers and tanagers, I think literally anybody can appreciate this. It, it's a close oh, yeah. spectacle to see, especially like, so I'm from, like I'm, I live 20 minutes from High Island, and so like I know what the local vibe is like. And nobody even knows what High Island is about. That's I know. They, 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 everybody like,
1: that I've met from Texas, or not from Texas, sorry, from Houston. Yeah. Which is only an hour, hour and a half away. Nobody knows. Nobody's heard of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, like people would go on on trips to like South America to to like experience the cool nature down there those very mm-hmm. same birds a lot of those very same birds come here they're in your own backyard yeah. but nobody goes to see them yeah I'm, I'm trying to get more of my my like duck hunting friends and stuff to to go out yeah. and go birding with me this spring um because it's get them cool i don't interested really have to be a, like a biologist or a nature nerd to go like really like be fascinated by seeing yeah 50 different species of of, of songbirds like mm-hmm. right here in Texas. It's just amazing.
1: Exactly. Yeah. When I was there last, I visited last spring and it was the craziest birding I've ever encountered, but it was because the weather was kind of really awful for the birds. Yeah. And if the weather's awful for the birds, that means it's great for the birders, <laughs> which is kind of sad, but that's, when you can see the most birds is when they can't fly because the weather is so bad and so when they get when they're flying north but they're getting a north wind especially when it's paired with um a south wind when they're in the yucatan peninsula so they get that south wind to get them going north but then as soon as they hit the us they hit a north wind this is what happened when i was there last Um, it pretty much just pushes them to the ground and they can't go any farther. Yeah. Um, which can be really sad. There was a, I think it was a scarlet tanager that landed on one of the volunteer's shoulders. Which, at first, when I heard about that, I was like, oh, that's so cool. And then the volunteers were like, no, it's not. That means that that bird is very, very exhausted.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, um, bound to die, like, probably.
1: Yeah, yeah. But High Island is so full of resources, which this year, or this, sorry, last year, I guess, um, it spring is kind of getting all mishmashed now. And the, yeah, the berries hadn't had time to come out. The caterpillars hadn't had time to come out. And the weather was just so bad. So the insects weren't out and it was a little chilly. So when the birds got to land and they, hit a north wind they had to stay put but they didn't really have a whole lot of resources to refuel um but most of them had enough that they could keep going um after the weather got a little bit better uh but there are really oftentimes it's called a fallout event and it's called that because the birds i think keith had mentioned this on on his episode um but it's called fallout because the birds sometimes will literally just fall out of the sky. Yeah. Um, but usually when the weather has been good and the spring is coming up at a normal time, by the time the birds get there, High Island is like a buffet yeah. for the birds and it refuels them. There's fresh water so that they can clean off the salt water from the Gulf and they can drink some fresh water and then head north to breed.
0: So this is, this is one example of how, um, climate instability creates like a seasonal mismatch for like these species that, that develop a very specific seasonality in life history to return to high Island, to the Texas coast at a certain time, um, to, to breed, but also they got to get here and they got to feed. But like lately the past couple of years, winter ends in, in spring, like it, there's no gradual, uh, transition into spring. It's just like winter and spring. It gets like really hot really fast. Uh, I don't know. The, like the phenology is really jacked up. The yeah. Years. So that's really interesting. But,
1: yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah. So when I was there working um, in the springtime, when all the birders are there, we got to. We obviously couldn't chainsaw because that's disrupting all the birds. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the visitors, but mostly for the birds. Yeah. Um, so what our job kind of transitioned to was working with the visitors, with all the birders. And so we would, um, there was even a, uh, not middle school, elementary school in the town that we would take the kids out on little guided nature hikes oh, cool. and teach them some bird calls and and some common birds in their area. And these are kids that grow up in High Island And, you know, I don't know their, their families aren't hardcore birders or anything like that. So I think they have a general like interest in nature, but not the passion. So we kind of helped, tried to help fuel the passion for the younger generation and took everybody visiting adults out and um, whatnot.
0: You know, it's a shame is High Island's school mascot is a cardinal.
1: I know <laughs>
0: species that visit their island. They went with a freaking cardinal.
1: The cardinal. It's a species. It's there year round.
0: Oh, okay. but like, what, like actually, tanager. That, or
1: something. Yeah, that's true. That well, I actually never thought about this until now. But cardinals. You know when you have you hear a certain sound or like smell a certain scent and it brings back memories. Yeah. For me the sound of Cardinals doing their like pew, pew, pew call reminds me of High Island. Like it brings me back to High Island. And I never made that connection with the school mascot.
0: That's cool. Yeah. You know, one of my, I have, I have a really good memory of High Island. Really my best memory of High Island is when I went out and stayed at the Audubon house with y'all.
1: Yeah. And that we was did a Christmas, so
0: fun. We needed a Christmas bird count.
1: Oh, that's so, right, and we got to go. Okay, yes, super cool. The s- surrounding High Island is all of these oil fields that are owned by the oil companies, and it's prime marsh birding. But it yeah. you can't go in it because it's owned by the oil companies, so you can't just be like driving around and there's gates and everything. But once a year for the Christmas bird count, they allow Houston Audubon like workers. To go, employees to go, do the bird count through the marsh. Yeah, that was. I learned a lot of ducks from yeah. you.
0: It was a big duck day. Yeah,
1: yeah, that was an amazing duck day. Oh, uh, is that? Is it technically prairie potholes or no?
0: That that's uh that that's that's just emergent marsh out there. Okay. There's gotcha. not a whole. There, there's like little, a few little upland marsh areas, but the immediate area around High Island, there's not a whole lot of uh proper prairie a lot of it's very it's almost all wetlands it seems like yeah high marsh you know that gets some water but um yeah it's very wet out there (laughs) around yeah yeah
1: that's true how did you
0: like the rookery the uh egret rookery
1: okay i well i have mixed feelings about the rookery so (laughs) going up to do Evening bird counts at the rookery is amazing your first couple times and then just really tedious after you experience it a few times, which I feel like is pretty common for a lot of research. But the rookery at night is where all of the wetland wading birds, like the bigger, the egrets and the herons and the cormorants and the spoonbills, which are incredible birds um they all gather there at night because it's safe they're above the water um and they're all together in trees in very large numbers and, and so they're you're on gotten,
0: islands right they're on yeah islands they're that on, on islands. protection yeah
1: yeah over this pond yeah. um but you know, some of the trees that they were on weren't the islands it was just kind of the edge of the okay, pond okay yeah yeah Uh, And then we had a swampy area that a lot of them would roost over the swamp as well. Um, But seeing all of the birds fly in during sunset is beautiful, but having to sit there with three clickers in your hands, Mm. trying to count five different species of birds and you're each like Mm. each you and your employees are all counting different species, but you have more species than there are people is <laughs> <laughs> so stressful oh, and you're like you have a clicker in each hand and then for like the species that aren't as frequent you just have the notepad of paper to write down when when they fly in so you count them while they're flying in yeah. and then once they're they're landed you don't continue counting them so when you're getting like a hundred birds of multiple different species all at once, flying in, <laughs> it gets very stressful. But only imagine, yeah. And in the summer, incredibly smelly, just awful. I can't even describe it. It's just bad, like barnyard, but mega, <laughs> <laughs> just awful. it's
0: <laughs> like so when I first went to, I decided, like I had, I had passed through High Island so many times growing up because. I live nearby and we'd go to Bolivar to go to the beach mm-hmm. like we'd pass your high Island. And I always oh saw, my
1: God, yeah. I always
0: saw like the bird signs and stuff. And I was like, I oh, never really cared much, but finally I was like, I'm going to go check this place out. And I went yeah. straight to the rookery and I thought that was it. I was like, this is it. Like, this is the rookery. high <laughs> Island. is what it's known for. I don't know. Yeah. That's like a very small part of it. Most of it is right. to see the neotropical migrants that come as mm-hmm. you were talking about earlier.
1: Yeah. Uh, I do like the record, the rookery because it is used year round yeah. so those wading birds aren't migrating like the smaller birds are but yeah it's just so many different types of birds that can be seen there's such a huge diversity it's amazing
0: um, do you know how many species have been documented on high island
1: um you can find it really easily on ebird it's definitely a few hundred
0: In the 300 um, I would assume
1: it's probably somewhere around three or four. Yeah.
0: A lot, um, birds. a lot of bird species. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There, so when I went last, um the Houston Audubon um employees did a what's called a big sit. And if anybody has heard of a big day or a big year, you're essentially just trying to find as many species as you can within whatever boundaries you want to set for yourself. And so their big sit was sitting in one spot on the new platform walkway there at the rookery. um, And they sat for, they did it for almost 24 hours. Um, It probably ended up being like 18 hours or something like that. But part of that was sleeping, getting there at midnight and then sleeping and then continuing it in the day. And they saw over 100 just in that one less than 18 hour period. Um, and that was when I was trying to do what I called my big weekend. And I was just trying to see how many species I could get within the weekend. I was vaguely trying to get a hundred, but I didn't want to make it to be such a hard bucket list that it wasn't going to be fun anymore. Um, and I ended up getting to, I think like 89 or something like that. Yeah. So they saw more sitting in one spot for a day than i saw in four days running around everywhere Mm -hmm. trying to like chase all of these different species to add to the list
0: do you remember how many we got on that christmas bird count it was over 100 i think
1: i can't remember um
0: i think it was my best day of birding yeah
1: i can't i can't remember i know there were a few species of of the ducks that I didn't put on my personal list because I hadn't learned them yet. And it was such a hard view, um, from the truck. But, um, I do know that we did a big day in October that year, but we went around to different, um, areas, not just the high Island area and we got 85. Okay. So I'm not sure how, I don't think, I don't think we got a hundred for Christmas. Yeah. So Lots. that's a
0: tough time of year to get over a hundred that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be really hard. We got a lot of shorebirds. We're really focused on shorebirds.
1: The shorebirds are Bucks. easy to, yeah, to to <clears throat> crank out some species. Shorebirds are really easy. Um,
0: we didn't get a lot of warblers or songbirds at that time of year.
1: No, probably not. No, and we didn't do a whole lot in the forest, if I remember correctly. We, we
0: did go through there, but it was we. made Oh
1: yeah, we. It. That's right. We went through Boy Scout Woods. I think um but yeah the shorebirds when we would do our shorebird surveys that was another part of the job description was doing weekly bird surveys um some in the rookery some at the at Bolivar Peninsula which is a mud flat and mud mud flats are really good spots for birds um because it provides a lot of uh foraging and feeding habitat um but we would crank out 40 plus species
0: just goals just, goals and just on the shore birds uh,
1: well so you have the prairie behind it so we'd get oh, okay. some yeah. raptors uh some um horned larks yeah um stuff like that as well as all of the gulls the terns the sanderlings and other sandpipers and plovers and oh my gosh the american <laughs> avocets really cool shorebirds yeah. i i could list them all they're so amazing
0: yeah. piping plover
1: I love the piping clover. They have bright orange legs, and they are so cute.
0: Yeah.
1: Tiny. They're like little puppies.
0: I had to I had to do uh, monitoring for piping plover and red knot, like, just a mile away from the Bolivar Flats. Now, oh, that's right. all never a red knot, though.
1: Hmm. We I had red knots see. at Bolivar Flats.
0: Yes, red knot. I never saw a red knot <laughs> when I was doing that monitoring. I did see piping plover, but after the monitoring period was over, um, mm actually i'll be doing that again this year I'm really excited although we never yeah,
1: that's cool
0: when they're doing this that, that's a restoration beach, yeah oh, exactly. it's a beach restoration it's a beneficial use uh of dredge and if they if they're doing work on the beach um after like july 15th or something they have to start monitoring they have to get a biologist <laughs> to go monitor for piping because they could possibly be in the area but I mean, yeah. I, I never saw a single piping plover when I was doing monitoring. Really? They don't yeah. really come until like August.
1: Yeah, they're probably, I wonder if it's just such a new habitat. How long has that been around?
0: Well, it's it's brand new. <laughs> I think the the thing is, okay. I think they just, they want to make sure there's a good cushion or like maybe that, that date they set is based off of the very earliest they've ever recorded a piping plover. Right, York, yeah. Like, it's very uncommon for them to be there in the heat in the middle of summer. Mm-hmm. It takes, they, they don't really come in in abundance until like August. <laughs> it seems like, but yeah. I don't mind it. Cause it's just fun work to go sit on the beach with my camera, yeah. you know, but
1: see birds, yeah.
0: Um, and th- this year I got to do turtle surveys out there as well.
1: Oh, if, for what turtle?
0: Uh, for, for sea turtle nesting.
1: Wow. I think we're going to see a
0: sea turtle, but it could possibly happen. So when they're doing work on the beach, around the nesting time we have to do yeah. work um so it- we
1: saw a turtle um that was beached during one of our surveys not on bolivar flats but um on bolivar, farther, yeah farther farther east yeah. along that same beach yeah. um but it was something was wrong with it so we had to call the turtle rescuer people yeah. and i think it was a green sea <clears> turtle <throat> yeah. if i remember correctly And he, the guy said that, um, it probably was just sick or something. And he said it was moving around enough that it's probably recoverable and could be re-released later on after being cared for.
0: That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Oliver in general is, um, it's so, it's so disturbed by humans. It's not really nesting habitat. I
1: can't believe that Texas allows people to drive on the beach.
0: Yeah. It's. That's It's that fun, just blows it's fun but it's uh for beach dwelling critters it's not not great. It's
1: right. And I I don't know. It just kind of like goes to show that we don't see the beach as an ecosystem. We just see it as like a pile of sand. Yeah. Which it's not. I mean, the middle part is kind of just a pile of sand, but There's everything probably
0: <laughs> invertebrates in there that are
1: Yeah, definitely underneath. Uh, but everything like where the water meets the land and yeah. where the plants are able to grow behind that like rack line yeah. is such important ecosystem I've... that trucks just trample.
0: Yeah. And, and, and growing up in the area, I will say it is fun to be able to drive on the beach.
1: Oh, def- I'm not going to
0: conservationist in me is, is like, wow. Yeah, When I go down to South Padre Island, there's huge expanses of beach that um, don't see a lot of people. And you just see shorebirds all down it. the The beach isn't near as mm-hmm. disturbed.
1: Mm-hmm. That's Bolivar, like the the mud see, flat being yeah. protected from the trucks is the same way.
0: When you go to Bolivar, you see you know you'll see some of the more common um, mm-hmm. like, uh, sanderlings are really common. Like you'll see them along yeah. the more disturbed areas. You'll see uh, laughing gulls and stuff. But then when you go to the when you pass those barriers for the Bolivar flats, it's like you're entering a new
1: immediately. Area.
0: It's just yeah. totally different. There's just tons and tons of shorebirds. I, I love going out there and I'll crawl around in my belly to get the low angle with my camera. Yeah. <laughs> those low yeah. angle shots, it's so much fun. You know, you get all sandy and nasty, but. Um,
1: yeah, it does. There. It smells bad over there too. All the areas that are really good for animals <laughs> <laughs> just smell so bad, <laughs> which is I, probably I like good. It keeps...
0: I like the smell of a, a nice uh, fertile marsh.
1: I that's fair I oh,
0: smells you nice. know
1: there's a lot of biodiversity there <laughs> healthy smelling. ecosystem
0: yeah. it, it it smells nice to me yeah Is there anything oh else? I
1: just had yeah I had a memory of Bolivar Flats um another part of our job there was to lead beach um birding tours oh, nice. and we would just walk down Bolivar Flats with a group and then make our way back to the trucks um so we were only ever out for like an hour or two but one day we went out and it was so foggy like you couldn't see 20 feet in front of you and my boss and I were doing the the tour that day and he was going through his normal spiel at the very beginning we were still at the trucks and he was like well normally at this time of year you can see magnificent frigate birds but it's so foggy that's not going to happen so we were looking at the really close common shorebirds that were hanging out by the truck it was a whole group of them and as he's explaining like which species is which I saw like essentially like if you could imagine living in a mythical world where like a dragon comes out of the clouds Mm -hmm. that's what it felt like and I smacked his arm and I was like Pete a frigate bird and he stops and everybody the whole group looks up and this frigate bird comes out of the fog flies overhead of us and then back into the fog and that was it it was it was magical it made the whole day
0: like a glimpse into prehistory like
1: yeah it, it was like water. a pterodactyl yeah, because yeah. frigate birds if somebody doesn't know about a frigate bird you need to look it up because they're like modern day pterodactyls they're so cool
0: when you go down to like um central america they're they're as common as goals you know they're. they're i would love about to out that. everywhere that's so cool yeah. but on bolivar and galveston you like you see one flying way up high and it's like oh
1: yeah and only seasonally too i can't remember which season is most common for them to be up there but
0: now they're like a true seabird right Mm -hmm. yeah and they're they're kleptoparasites they don't spend a lot of time right
1: no barely any at all pretty much only to breed they spend most of their life in the air and they mainly they mainly eat by stealing fish from other seabirds out of the air they're crazy
0: what are some other seabirds we got we got boobies we got
1: yeah i never saw one there um
0: when those show what there was a uh, brown footed booby mm-hmm. observation last year and somewhere in southeast Texas, but they're yeah. really rare. And it's usually yeah, a to... weather event that like got mm-hmm. them off track.
1: We did see a black scoter once. Oh, the cool. Um,
0: cool duck! that's a really cool duck.
1: Oh, we saw another, oh, I can't remember what it's called. It's like a gull, but more seabird like. Oh. I can't remember what they're called. It'll come to me later, maybe.
0: And there is a, like, a like when you look at a goalie, you'd think that's a seabird, but they're, in fact, a shorebird. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. Fish I fish actually fish. came to the realization recently that gulls mm. have such a limited, like, habitat range. Because yeah. they're, like, if you think about how big a beach is, that's how big they're, right. Range can be. <laughs> it's not that
0: Laughing much, so goals. Awesome. Some goals have expanded their range inland because of uh. That's true. the reservoirs that have been built.
1: That's true. They love lakes.
0: Like that's a good one. Like, like even around uh, College Station up there, there are goals popping up really, really.
1: Yeah, that's true. There's um here in Knoxville, there's a Walmart that every time I go, I see laughing goals, and I need to look that's at the mean. map because there's got to be some sort of yeah to. there's got to be something around there
0: have you ever done the the rare bird chasing
1: um yes but do. only really easy ones we did um when i was in high island there was a fork-tailed flycatcher that came up okay. and we chased that and it took like half an hour to find okay. so <laughs> it wasn't hard but it was still really exciting yeah. um but I haven't done anything crazy like you did going down to South Texas and spending all day rare bird chasing. That's not
0: something I would do on my own, on my own terms. I I did that with Keith and Cameron. (laughs)
1: Honestly, I would, I'm not going to say that I wouldn't do that because I probably would, but I get just as excited seeing common birds as I do rare birds because just learning about like species interactions and the ecology of every species and the behavior of every species is so unique yeah. and i don't know i i think they're all really special even if people call like mockingbirds trash birds which i strongly disagree with
0: <laughs> i will say i wish texas had a better state bird
1: Oh like so many countries okay. and yes. there are
0: state bird. That's kind of There wild.
1: are like 9 states that have mockingbirds as their state bird. It's unnecessary. It's so there strange. are so many better birds that you could okay. choose that are state specific.
0: I think the, maybe the birders of the of that day were just super lame.
1: <laughs> maybe they didn't know as much, I don't know.
0: <laughs> would like Texas had The golden
1: Seek warbler. Only breed in be- Texas. The state bird, yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: So many other better birds, but yeah, there, there's so much to talk about with birding. You know, I, yeah.
2: For me personally, I go
0: on forever. I love. I'm just. I love learning about natural history and exploring and, and biodiversity in general. I will never be a rare bird chaser. For me, mm-hmm. it does it? For me, for birds is experiencing birds unique to regions. Yeah. Uh, spring migration will always be something i do from now on that that's a cool experience and really just um unique birds that are that are fun to to watch and um just have interesting uh morphologies and and beautiful colors i i am more attracted to the to the birds that have the really really the fancy <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, that's a photographer
0: fair. as well it, it is cool right. to photograph like to go to south texas and photograph green jays or oh. your- see green altamira orioles um kiskades like that when i get mm-hmm. a nice photo of an of an altamira oriole it just feels nice
1: it just that's really cool you know, yeah it, as far <laughs> I as like
0: collecting that. species I, I guess i have a list on uh, merlin and eBird. Mm-hmm. i'm not as much of a species chaser with birds um right
1: I like keeping a list, but that's because I list everything in my whole life. My brain works you're in list, lists. A
2: Lister. Yeah.
1: I'm a list keeper, but, um, yeah, i I'm the same way. I would rather learn about the individuals rather than just trying to rack up as many as I can. Um, and learn. I, I learned a lot from you about like, appreciating the ecosystems that the things you're interested are in yeah. and i've recently become like same with you really into plants right. because i feel like once you understand plants you can better understand most other things
0: yeah and not even uh you don't even have to be like super knowledgeable about plant biology per se mm-hmm. understanding plant communities
1: yeah yeah and how they like, not necessarily interact, but how they're associated with the geology, and how weather and climate affects each individual ecosystem and like micro ecosystems within those. I that's what I find like most fascinating about nature.
0: It's fun, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's I, really cool. I'm, I'm it's gonna,
1: hard to learn, though.
0: Yeah, it is. I one thing. I think is, that's really important is to start with your own backyard. Mm-hmm. Like wherever you spend the most time, get to know totally. every feature of it, the soil, yeah. the geologic history, mm-hmm. the dominant plants that, that really wow. form the habitat, um, rare plants that may be found there are fun to look for. And then like, it all starts to like come together when you, cause you, you, most of us, yeah like we already know the, a lot of the animals and then, but then it all like, it all like makes sense when you when you learn the job yeah, of the plants.
1: Exactly,
0: that's so cool. That's
1: and that's like recently I've been getting really into um, watching gardening shows. And as much as I love gardening, it just kills me that people oh. think that you can put any plant anywhere, and if you just take care of it, that that's nature.
0: That's not nature. Like horticulture nature. is is like. I mean, I, I don't know much about like generally, but with horticulture, but generally it um, it is really bad for native plant communities because they promote non-natives, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's like, there's a balance that I think ecologists and conservationists can move a little bit towards the middle and horticulturists need to move a little bit towards the yeah. middle to find that like middle ground between being able to grow beautiful plants, maybe even just for food, but, and not just aesthetics, but maybe aesthetics too, but also for wildlife. And that's what kills me the most is in these gardening shows, people will plant all of, and I'm not trying to like shit talk anybody or that like mindset, but there just needs to be more education that just because you're planting wildflowers does not mean that you're providing adequate habitat for native insects or mammals or birds or whatever you're trying to attract or toads. Like there are specific interactions between certain species that live in certain areas that you're not going to understand until you go back and look at what we talked about, like the geology and the weather and the plants. And then you can understand why certain species live in certain areas. And we can't just change that and expect it to work
0: there is a huge disconnect i was i just moved out back home to my family's property and, and my nana lives next door and she loves birds and she also loves her plants i was like nana you can you can benefit both if you plant right. native plants <laughs> she didn't even know what i was talking about when i said native plants i had to explain to her my, my poor nana she's just you know she's old old school she doesn't know about native ecology and plant yeah
2: and, stuff.
0: And, and she didn't even realize like she could buy plants that like belong here that that evolved right here that that co-evolved with the animals here and you can have mm-hmm. beautiful landscaping and and uh, flowers and stuff that benefits the local ecosystem you know right it it's the local wildlife I'm, I'm trying to i'm trying to convince her but then there's the problem of yeah. where do you get the native plants to plant you got to find a native right. nursery
1: yeah you if have to find like a, a specific nursery what if
0: there's not a native plant nursery nearby it is it is hard it is hard yeah
1: that's very true I'm, I'm um and unless thing. you're like i don't expect nanas to be into this but you can go out seed collecting right. and
2: you can do that. bring
1: in local populations of native plants that are around you yeah. but not everybody's going to be interested in that not everybody's going to be able to do that and, and um,
0: that the native plant nurseries aren't super expensive either you know
1: which they are yeah and that's yeah
0: like my nana's you know she just she loves to grab stuff when she's at you know down at the walmart she likes to grab mm-hmm.
1: yes oh my them. gosh <laughs> walmart plants i cannot with them
0: <laughs> they're bad but they're cheap they're, they're so bad for people like my nana
1: yeah yeah mm-hmm. um
0: and beautiful. Learned- some of them are very beautiful too.
1: Some of them are, um, but, <laughs> but I, okay. Um, I recently have been looking into um, buying some native milkweeds. Yeah. Some of them are like $20 for one plant.
0: That's ridiculous.
1: Like, I'm sorry. I am a biologist. I cannot afford that.
0: Go find <laughs> your own milkweeds.
1: I need to go find my own milkweed ethically, and collect,
0: some ethically collect them.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which the common milkweeds out in some of these areas cover a whole field of oh, them wow. like, a whole field of common milkweeds. Cool. They're wow. gorgeous. Um, so, that is doable. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah i feel like we should move on to neon because we yeah, can yeah. talk about yeah yeah we can and, move on, like, on to neon
0: all you, you wanted to skip your AM experience
1: oh <laughs> subconsciously i guess
0: right it was a good experience i think
1: grad school was grad school was grad school if you've been in grad school or know people in grad school you understand that was hard especially during covid
3: yeah
1: um but I learned a lot. I had really great professors. My advisor, Dr. Miguel Mora was amazing and very patient with me, yep. uh, which I needed a <laughs> lot of. And I guess I just, so my thesis was about, I was interested in how humans were affecting the environment and I researched um. PFOs, which is a chemical that I don't necessarily need to go into the details of but it's kind of like the new up-and-coming chemical to avoid kind of like how um, uh, DDT used to be it's kind of becoming that kind of thing Um, and it's in everything and so I was looking to see in this creek White Creek that ran through College Station which is where Texas A&M is um, I was looking to see the levels in the creek above, like upstream and downstream of two potential point sources, which was the fire training facility and an airport. And PFOS is in a lot of, I guess, quote, non-environmentally friendly firefighting foams, which, you know, that's a whole thing, but it's... <laughs> Uh, PFAS Mm. is also used in some things like de-icing solutions that are used on airplanes so at the airport but this being coastal nearly coastal Texas not a huge thing there Um, I ended up not finding a statistically significant difference upstream versus downstream which is good but there was PFAS in the creek in both places there's PFAS everywhere there are studies That show PFOS in Arctic species, where they've probably never come in contact with anything human-related. Right. You know, until the researchers got there and took tissue samples.
0: But widespread.
1: It's it's everywhere. It goes through the atmosphere. It goes through ocean currents. It goes through soil and stays there for decades. It doesn't degrade. It bioaccumulates. That's more studies are being done on the bioaccumulation effects of and biomagnification effects of PFAS and related yeah. chemicals. Um, but yeah, that was, I don't know. It's just not as fun to do that <laughs> as mark it recapture. is to just like go birding and right. mark recapture turtles and snorkel right. in a river. <laughs>
0: <was> interesting <laughs> but I it's
1: actually,
0: imp- I, When I was doing, because I worked for you uh, in the Mora lab
2: mm-hmm.
0: and I had to do an undergraduate research thesis, but it was just a literature review yeah i learned a lot about pfos and it, it made me appreciate ecotoxicology a lot more and how me too that's huge true. lack in uh, literature for uh pfos in particular pfos impacts on reptiles and amphibians
1: Hmm. Uh, that's right we should have done more with that we could have gotten that published
0: yeah like that when i was finishing that it was during covid and it was oh yeah it was a right. pain in my ass <laughs> finishing
1: Struggle,
0: but, I, but yeah. I like when I finished it, it felt really good. That's the most extensive mm-hmm. paper I've written. And uh, I mean, I thought it was more I thought it was publishable, but it, it would have needed a lot of work. I don't know if I'll ever go back to it, but it that's, was a good experience. Oh, yeah, what, that's when I was working for you, it made everything make more sense.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You're doing yeah, it.
1: but yeah, that's I'm probably not ever going to publish my master's thesis. Okay. on the PFOS research because it would just take essentially a whole nother master's to like get it to publication quality um, that I just don't have the patience sure. or time or energy for <laughs> that's a project <laughs> for another student. <laughs> right.
0: That was a, that was a challenging one for your, for your master's thesis, mm-hmm.
1: especially, especially during COVID. And especially when we couldn't go do field research, which right. I feel like so many people struggled with that yeah not being able to finish their
0: research that kind of that kind of sucked but you took some cool classes
1: mm-hmm. yeah I my favorite one was probably community ecology and that was with Dr. Kirk Weinmiller that oh just made me understand nature yeah. so much better like so community ecology is the ecology of communities of organisms. So different species of plants and animals versus like, I know you know this already, but I'm just explaining the basics. The of audience, it. Yeah. Of- um, versus populations, which are like the different individuals of the same species, but I'm interested in different species of organisms, plants and animals, and I don't know, fungi and lichens etc that all live in one community
0: yeah
1: and that was really that was a really cool class
0: and he's like world renowned for his work
1: yeah i think so he so he's super obsessed with this naturalist from a long time ago named alexander von humboldt and i have a book about him now but i haven't read it yet and he essentially was like an explorer that went to south america a lot and he kind of just took very what we would think as basic ecology and like weather pattern notes and stuff Yeah, but it was really like important for the scientific community at the time and i think it's even still important now to not forget you know the basic fundamentals of ecology yeah. and everything yeah
0: we can move on to neon now if you want to.
1: Okay. <laughs> yeah, let's get past. Very brief.
0: School. Very brief grad school <laughs> part.
1: Um. So yeah, do you want me to just explain what my job is? Yeah.
0: Or yeah. What explain ne- neon's a very cool concept in general. yes yeah,
1: So I known neon. About
0: it you got on
1: mm-hmm. there. Neon stands for the National uh, Ecological Observatory Network. And it's an organization that's now owned by a company called Battelle. And so I like to explain it as it's privately owned. So Battelle is a private company, but it's government contracted. Yeah. Um, it's uh, federally funded. So the NSF, the National Science Foundation, funds it. And it's publicly, publicly available data. So every ecological and environmental <clears throat> piece of data that we collect the data and specimens is public publicly available. Um, some of it, like some of our specimens go to bio repositories at different universities. And some of it is just straight data that goes online and you can download it really okay. easily. Um, the whole point of the program is to be 30 years to start. And then hopefully they will get, you know, refunded and whatnot and it keep going but a 30-year program and a huge thing that you can do with this information
0: there's funding from 30 there's funding for 30 years right now yeah wow that's yeah this is a it's long-term incredible. long-term data yeah. collection effort
1: and uh it goes over the entire u.s plus alaska hawaii puerto rico
0: it's crazy
1: so it's there's i think 20 domains um and each domain takes up about anywhere from one to three states um with different sites in each and so
0: um most of the major biomes are covered i guess
1: yeah i think they're trying to go for like the dominant ecosystems yeah, yeah. Like,
0: so you want a domain in like <laughs> appalachia you want a domain in like Texas is a domain in itself, probably.
1: Yeah. And a domain in, like <laughs> yeah. the
0: Rockies, a domain and like the uh, the tundra, Great Plains, the tundra. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. gist suggested yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And like temperate rainforest, and oh, yeah, yeah. You know the Northwest and stuff like that, Pacific Northwest. Um. So, uh, the third with the thirty years, so long term and over a wide range of ecosystems, you can really see how the climate is affecting the environment. And we take so many, I made like a little list of all of our different protocols. I can't even go through all the protocols, but I'm going to summarize them because there's so many things that neon studies. So last year I was on the fauna team and the fauna team studies beetles. Small mammals, mosquitoes, and ticks. There's also a separate bird team. And this year, I'm kind of equally on fauna and flora. And flora looks at, there's like six different protocols that look at biomass. And you look at from like Hmm. sapling stage through to growing stage to mature to the size, to the canopy, to dead logs on the ground. Like this week I'm going to measure logs that's and that's, really that's cool. it.
0: I like biomass yeah. studies in general. Though. I feel like that they're playing so much about so it. Yeah.
1: They're like, if you look at each one individually, you're like, why are we doing this again? But then when you see the whole like picture of what's happening in a forest over time or in any, they do biomass studies and prairies and okay. stuff. Um, and deserts. So, but flora also goes over phenology. I'm doing that tomorrow in the Smokies. Um, diversity. I'm doing that this summer and soils.
0: Diversity will be a lot of fun.
1: That's my favorite. Learn one, right?
0: so much about your local yeah. biodiversity. You know.
1: yeah. There's certain plots that we have in the Smokies. I was making. I've been making species lists for the past couple of weeks, and some of the plots have over a hundred species. And these plots, okay. I guess nobody has like a an idea of how big they are. I think each plot is twenty meters by twenty meters. Okay. I think it could be wrong, but yeah. that's about how big it is. A lot of species. Um, for such a yeah, species. packed into one little. But then up in the um, the what is it called? The higher elevation uh, areas in the Smokies some of the plots only have like seven species of plants
0: oh wow yeah
1: which is it's a crazy difference just like from the mid or bottom of the mountain to the top um but then they also there's also aquatics teams and we have huge towers in each of our sites in each domain that are specifically neon towers that rise like a certain number of meters above the canopy level. So the Smokies tower is like, I don't want to give a wrong number, but it's many dozens of meters tall. Let's just say that, (laughs) like think many dozens and then add some, Mm -hmm. it's just really tall. And um, there's a bunch of different environmental instruments up at the top A-body. that collects
0: like a body yeah
1: wind and rain and humidity and sun direction and literally everything you could possibly do
0: so it's a lot yeah.
1: <laughs> it's a lot going on I feel
0: like if if you ever it's a lot of people they don't want to uh like they're, they're, you can be a generalist biologist or you can be very specific
1: mm-hmm. this is probably My-
0: to be to really be well-rounded as a biologist yes, naturalist. exactly.
1: My just, job title valuable. this year is generalist.
0: Okay. That's good. I feel like
1: that's yeah. a good thing.
0: Unless <laughs> yeah. you're like pursuing academia and you're, you're going to study like one plant or one plant community, I feel like just being a well-rounded biologist and naturalist mm-hmm. is so valuable.
1: That's what I really, yeah, that's kind of my goal is to just continue to learn and, yeah. and be as well-rounded and all knowing as I possibly can be. <laughs>
0: I've never heard of another uh, job where you get to do that much different stuff.
1: I know it's so unique. And I feel like it's because of like the ability to be funded and the goal of just understanding what's happening in our environment. And the, so you need to know everything.
0: The really cool part about it is you get to do it in your own backyard. Yes.
1: And that's so, so specifically for me, my domain is called the um, Appalachian Mountains and Cumberland Plateau. Uh, Do you know that climbing area that I go to a lot? That is in the Cumberland Plateau or up on the Cumberland Plateau, I guess. And we don't actually have a site up there. So it's a little misleading and it kind of annoys me. Our site is at the bottom, like in the valley below the Cumberland Plateau. Okay. But the plant communities are completely different. Mm. It's like your typical valley, like oak hardwood forest yeah. compared to the Cumberland Plateau is going to be a little bit more similar to the Smoky Mountains. Okay. So we have the site at the in the valley of the Cumberland Plateau. We have a site in the Smoky Mountains, and we have a site up in southwestern Virginia that's also a part of the Appalachian Mountains, okay. but it's surprisingly very different. There's like six-foot-tall cinnamon fern fields in a forest.
2: Oh, my
1: God. It's so magical. Cool. <laughs> it is so cool. You could get lost. It's so different.
0: Well, we're talking about Tennessee, and, and I think the Cumberland Plateau is the right geologic area. What do you make of this um, stoppage of the prairie restoration out there? Oh,
1: that's up on the Cumberland Plateau, okay, right? Yeah.
0: Cumberland,
1: yeah. So tomorrow, there's actually I try to get my coworkers to do it with me, and a couple were interested, but um, we're all just so busy with work. There's a meeting that's happening in a town that's not far from here, and it's essentially just like a meeting so everybody can have a voice and and say whether they're on the side of um not wanting to cut down trees to restore native grasslands yeah. or whether they're siding with the twra as the tennessee wildlife resources agency okay. in wanting to cut down some trees that weren't naturally there before we clear cut everything and then just let it regrow
2: yeah
1: um So, essentially, part of the Cumberland Plateau was these oak savannas that are pretty common out by you in Texas. Right. Um, They're not as common here, but I think they used to be.
0: A lot of the same species? like blackjack oak, we get, post, we get
1: oak. post oak we get blackjack oak the
0: grass uh, is like uh blue stems and
1: we get little blue stem big blue stem we really have
0: all like, uh, are the same exact as a, a post it's
1: so stem. similar to texas it's texas? really
0: weird that's cool and
1: like east texas far east texas is very similar to the smoky mountains plant communities and even animal and communities and,
0: magnolias and yeah
1: Yeah. And all of the spring ephemeral flowers and Uh, Mm may apple.
0: Have have you seen areas? Have you, now that you've learned more about the history of the savannas or have you noticed areas that are forested now, but you're noticing like remnant blackjack oaks that, you know, tell you what it was before. Mm -hmm. I
1: haven't gotten that good at identifying it on my own without being told beforehand and then understanding, but there is one area that's in the town where our office is. And it's just, I eyeballed it for so long before I asked about it to my botanist. And, um, it's just this teeny tiny little park next to a, um, middle school. And it's like forested but the entrance is like this tiny little pocket of prairie and it's a glade is that where the the rock
0: is the rock bedrock is is on the surf is exposed and it creates a very nutrient poor environment and there's very specific and it's like
1: rare plants that live there yes it's that and there's a little bit you like walk in this teeny little trail through the forest and then there's more of it in the back and there's a lot of restoration work that's gone on there um I helped do it uh once with a couple of my coworkers last year
2: yeah.
1: and um so there's little pockets like that and then up on the Cumberland Plateau Katusa Wildlife Management Area I've been before and they have educational signs that talk about the restoration of the oak savanna there mm-hmm. so I I kind of noticed, like, oh, this is a really open part of the forest, but then it wasn't until I read the signs where they were doing active um, burning there to restore the savanna and everything.
0: Yeah. So that's a, um, it's really a, a good teaching lesson for people, you know, like just because an area has a lot of trees, does not mean it's a healthy ecosystem.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: That grasslands. Uh, this guy Kyle. Liebarger, native native habitat, native project.
1: habitat project, he, he yeah,
0: doing amazing work. Yeah, getting him to come on the podcast. He finally uh, responded to one of my emails, so hopefully we'll make yeah, it happen yeah, soon. But
1: that'd be awesome. He is
0: communicating such quality knowledge to the masses through his mm-hmm. Instagram that grasslands are really really important for biodiversity. And yeah, he he compared forests to the charismatic megafauna of plants. Everybody yeah,
2: that's right. I remember that. Save
0: the rhino while ignoring the the species, the the smaller animals that need yeah. to be conserved in their own backyard that aren't as charismatic but are equally important. And yeah. uh, forests are kind of the same way. You know, people mm-hmm. just automatically think, you know, p- plant a tree and save the world. But you can yeah. fact like decreasing biodiversity, native biodiversity leading to species extinctions by doing that
1: yeah and the media does not help at all because with this specific project that people are opposing because they don't understand that the those areas weren't native forest land the media is calling it um uh what do they say they don't say ancient forest but they say i don't know that they say old growth but they use a word that's so similar
0: basically alluding to that.
1: Mature. I think they say mature old forest or something like that. And people assume that they're talking about old growth. That's not old growth forest. That was clear cut. The areas around those prairies and savannas were clear cut a hundred years ago and maybe a little over a hundred by now, but, um, those prairies were open when fires were common, when there were more, uh, grazing animals like elk.
2: Yeah.
1: It's just a whole different ecosystem. And it was never purely just a thick stand of forest the whole way through.
0: It's really a shame that there's such a disconnect there and it's hunters, it's, it's hunters. And then it's also stereotypical tree huggers that are both in one instance, they're actually on the same side, they're on the wrong side. Yeah. Together. <laughs> yeah.
2: It's only the, the well educated
0: ecologists that are like, Yeah, we, we need wait to wait a second, restore mm-hmm. back to its original state, which can h- help hunters and people that love nature because, right, and bird diversity it'll increase uh mammal diversity and reptile diversity, you know. It, yeah, know it, I, Kyle was saying something about there was a um a fringed orchid that is found there, but it's in tiny little remnants because the grasslands are gone.
1: We do have, we have, uh I've only seen fringed orchids in the higher elevations, but we have mm. orange and purple. I don't remember their scientific names, Um, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. If they used to be found right. in the Cumberland Plateau as well.
0: Or open habitat. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. Where there's just not a whole lot of it left, but I would have, been in the same boat as all the other like people that aren't hearing the actual truth about the history, the natural history of these areas. Because when you see media that's saying TWRA is trying to clear cut our forests, <laughs> yeah. you're like, huh, why would they do that? Are yeah. they just trying to make money? But it's really just that they're trying to restore habitat or yeah. like ecosystems back to how they're supposed to be.
0: Now, I, w- I went and looked at uh, the Tennessee Wildlife agency's facebook page and they're posting about it um and i was looking at the comments it was bad the comments oh no
1: there's one
0: person that claimed claimed to be a biologist and and talked like a biologist that was yeah really against the project and i just
1: interesting an
0: actual biologist is wrong like doesn't understand here that i mean that's a that's a problem
1: but it makes me wonder if I just hope they're doing it in the right areas, like low locality wise. Oh, right. Like, I just hope that they're actually restoring grassland where there was where grassland before, and not just like putting grassland where there was forest.
0: I would, I would assume that they know. they know they're looking at the indicators looking for
1: right. I would south, hope
0: though. So. Blackjack. If there's blackjack Oak, it was a freaking Savannah or if there's was
1: Post yeah. Oak. Yeah. yeah. That
0: was a freaking Savannah. That's, yeah. If you know anything about savannas, that's, those are good indicators. Yeah. It's a, conservation is very complex sometimes. Uh, oh my
1: God. All the time. I feel like. When you're
0: <laughs> telling people like, like Kyle does, he, he's, you know, a forester. he knows a lot about forest and, and, and grassland communities. He's going around telling people mm-hmm. to, that less trees is better. You know, this is, yeah. this goes against everything that this new green movement has ever right. <laughs> said. Yeah.
2: Yeah,
0: uh, like it, there's all these like initiatives to like just plant a million trees somewhere, and every time I see those those things, like are they planting natives? Right, that's
1: ecosystems? what I always think too. Are those
0: forest ecosystems, or those grasslands, are those? You never know. Like, you always yeah. that they're consulting with bio, real biologists that know about the natural history, but a lot of the the quote green movement, it's right. in good faith but a lot of it is, is ecologically not sound. You know?
1: Yeah. And oh, I feel like yeah. a lot of corporations take advantage of that and don't take the time or energy to actually help the environment. Right. I feel like they can just m- like make money off of saying that they're planting trees. And when I learned
0: this new term, it's not actually green, greenwashing. I learned that recently. Yeah, like yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> yeah, just... That's a whole thing.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good that's a good word to, to describe it though because it yeah definitely good. um just it looks good you know it looks good for the company to say they planted mm-hmm. all these trees even if it didn't benefit a single yeah. native species
1: right that's why it's so important for consumers and just you know not even talking about consumers, I'm just people in general to really learn and understand ecology and i wish that if i could just like make everybody as passionate about ecology and the environment not just like the environment you know but actual nature
0: yeah i don't not, like, i don't like using the term environment because i don't either what is it, i don't what even we even talk it about?
1: doesn't mean anything about
0: ecosystems
1: yes exactly
0: what about ecosystems
1: that's what so i just wish i could like implant that in everybody right and have everybody be as passionate and just wanting to learn. Because that's where it starts. is just like curiosity and wanting to learn. And I just wish everybody was as interested in it as we are.
0: And it's, it, I wish like when, it, when you take a high school biology class or like middle school biology class, I wish they were emphasizing ecology
1: because mm-hmm.
0: it's so relevant yeah. to, to daily life you know, and it makes mm-hmm. life more interesting. And, and like, we are a part of nature. We are nature. Right.
1: A, yeah. I didn't really get a in depth. <laughs> right. Exactly.
0: We're a, we're a native. Primate. We're
1: connected we're native to, to Africa. Africa. Yeah, you know? like, exactly. We, Yeah. We're just as connected to nature as everything else is, even if we don't realize it. Um, but yeah, I didn't really get a deep uh, understanding of ecology until college. And that was because that was my major So if that's not somebody's major, then they're not really learning, like, how evolution functions and how ecology on a, like, small scale and large scale function.
0: Yeah. It's cool to know know about life on Earth.
1: I know. That's, I I love teaching about
0: that. Ecology and evolution combined makes helps you make sense of things It even helps me understand human mishaps and behaviors and, right
1: yeah exactly like when you, under,
0: like, when you understand like now nat- the basics of like natural selection and, mm-hmm. and gene flow and and genetics in general it really helps you make sense i kind attribute <laughs> a lot of not to go down the rabbit hole of like society <laughs> but <laughs> uh societal problems I, tr- I i can understand through the lens of biology
1: Mm-hmm. An evolution.
0: An evolution. It, mm-hmm. We're we're a flawed, you know, species.
1: Um, have you watched the documentaries about Jane Goodall?
0: I have not. No, but there's uh, a
1: couple on Disney Plus. Um, when you like, and there's a few. She has quite a few books um, that she's written over the decades. I've read one that she wrote in the '90s called "Reason for Hope," which is actually a, a really good book to read right now. I feel yeah. like, <laughs> um, and she has another one about hope. I can't remember what it's called. I haven't read it yet, Um, but learning about her research and her perspective of nature and humans and primates is it just like makes everything make sense.
0: Yeah. It's really cool. She has a unique perspective on nature because she studied uh, a group of animals that we are very closely related to. Mm -hmm. So I can only imagine. Exactly. It'd be so cool to sit down with her. That would be. It. <laughs> she must uh, yeah, that, that like people like her would be like uh, the pinnacle of a podcast guest. <laughs> oh
1: yeah, absolutely. I can't
0: imagine how many requests she gets from from a uh, podcast.
1: In one of the documentaries, that talks more about her work life, like post researching in the jungle, <clears throat> and her like pretty much her entire life after doing her research has been just like traveling the world to speak to people about and not just speaking about it but like working with politicians and working with like oil companies and stuff to try to make things more like I don't know better for
0: fine middle ground
1: yeah fine middle ground exactly.
0: You can't go to those sorts of uh, companies and, and and be demanding. There always has to be a middle ground. That's another reality yeah. of conservation, I realized.
1: Yeah. And there, it talks about in one of the documentaries that people pretty much like, I don't want to say like demonized her, but like definitely ridiculed her for working with an oil company. And she's just so calm about everything. She just explains like, this is what you have to do if you want.
0: There's there's what we to, wish was and yeah. the, there's reality. There's exactly. what's actually happening in society. Yeah. And that's the fact right. is we means. all rely on oil. Like we would not be having this conversation without oil, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just uh, like we can dream oil. about a future without oil, and hopefully yeah. we get to that point soon. Yeah. But it's just not gonna happen as soon as we want it to. And we have to figure out solutions for the meantime.
0: And there's, there's a, um, there's a really cool organization called Texan by Nature. I don't know if you've seen me post about it. Um, they have like a, they have a summit every year. It's a, it's really relatively new. And their whole purpose is to connect uh, big corporations with small conservation nonprofits. That's cool. Like, because there's this new thing it's uh, it's called ESGs. I think it's like environmental social, something something it's a it's a scoring system and companies they want to have a high ESG
1: oh so they, okay yeah
0: by putting by uh funding these conservation movements and conservation initiatives and organizations it increases their ESG score
2: mm-hmm.
3: I think it's
0: ESG but anyway so Texas My Nature works as like the liaison between the two like connecting okay you know big corporations with small conservation groups and during that summit they had like bp uh, representative from bp oil
1: i was gonna uh, say in texas oil would be a huge like one yeah. up
0: there and he he actually seemed genuinely it's all it's all probably just a show <laughs> for something like that but i'm sure there's cool to see. there are
1: environmental people that do work for those companies there are, there
0: are. but it yeah. was just neat to see the 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 two like oil and gas and conservation in the same room having these conversations
2: talking uh, yeah and, and the oil yeah. and
0: gas companies they have tons of money to put towards grassland restoration and you know it, wetlands and all this stuff so it's um that that was really cool to see it it gives some hope for the future yeah um,
2: yeah
0: and there were other like in that meeting there was uh, someone that talked about like solar and not renewable energy and Someone in the audience from like a grassland, uh, uh, nonprofit, restoration nonprofit, they, they mentioned they were like, Well, if we're going to do solar panels, I'm going off on a tangent here, but that's okay. We're gonna do solar panels, you know, we need to put them in areas that aren't ecologically significant, you know, right? Stuff, stuff like that. Like, there,
2: yeah, there's a
0: good movement. I think there's momentum right now in the right direction for, yeah, for resources. Um, even with, you know, our current energy systems, which are less than ideal in many aspects, um, but utilizing them as we have them now is good, I think. I don't, there's, there's just some sort of, uh, like people think it's a bad thing if you're taking money from oil and gas to fund conservation, like it's blood money or something. That's just ridiculous. Right. It's not rational thinking at all.
1: No, it's not. There's
0: as much biodiversity as possible with what resources like- we have available. <laughs>
1: yeah that thinking is wanting to be leaning towards progress but in reality yeah that is what progress will look like in our current society
0: it's it's more of a symbolic thing rather than like real time like we need money to restore this grassland the only fun fundraising we can get is from oil and gas but we're not going to take the right. money, you
1: know. Like take the money if you can take, take the freaking money. money. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
0: Anyway, that that's that's an interesting conversation. Yeah. Um, how, how you know? There's there's there are different things happening in the conservation world that are good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but do we finish neon?
1: Um. Kind yeah. Of got pretty off on much. Neon. You could do a whole podcast on Neon, <laughs> on but I think I did a good
0: You're enjoying it, though. You're enjoying it overall.
1: Oh, yeah. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you I'm learned- definitely going to be here for a few years at least.
0: You learned a lot in undergrad, grad school, mm-hmm. but Neon, that's like totally immersive. Yeah. Like, yeah. Everything you can I'm imagine learning- field work wise you're doing it.
1: I'm learning new things. Mm-hmm. I'm not kidding. Probably every single day. Mm-hmm.
0: How was the, like, y'all spend a lot of time in a lab? Oh,
1: yeah. So we, beta. it's, it's pretty much what, like, we learn in orientation is that it's about 70% field work, 30% lab work. That's a good. And <laughs> it's a perfect ratio because as somebody who loves field work, and I think most field work ecologists will understand this, is you can't do it every single day it's just it burns you out you need like a relaxing friday in the lab listening to a podcast just sorting through beetle bycatch or (laughs) making species list for the diversity protocol i don't know the yeah it's a perfect proportion i think especially for when it's a really bad weather day and you're in the lab like all cozied up. Oh, yeah. with their phones in, and you're like, "This is so perfect. I'm so glad I'm in the lab."
0: I never thought I would say, but I I, I have been appreciating my time at at a computer just data, mm-hmm. data stuff. Data man, I love learning processing. with data.
1: Yeah, never thought fun. I would
0: say that because I for <laughs> my, I've always been so field oriented. Yeah,
2: you
0: know this about me? Like I would have to go to yeah. like get through like some of my basic pop dynamics classes and. Yeah. Like just right, math and shit. I'm just never. Well, when
1: it's all, I don't person. like that either.
0: Um When
1: it's all on the computer, it gets really tiring. You need a good bath
0: Now, uh, like especially during the heat of the summer, the field work gets old fast. <laughs> it gets tired Yeah. And I With che- the, just yeah sitting in the office. And in the Smokies, we
1: are like trekking through rhododendron on. Sp- deep slopes in the mud tomorrow. I'm doing phenology. Our phenology loop is not on a trail. It's just in the woods Ooh. on a enormously steep slope and it's going, it's been raining. So it's our muddiest loop that we have our muddiest little like transector plot that we go through. And it's going to be interesting.
0: <laughs> Good luck with that. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know what? That's this week.
1: Yeah. So tomorrow is phenology, and then the rest of the week I will be doing. The protocol is called coarse downed wood, but we're looking at what is technically called coarse woody debris, and that's the measuring logs.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. That's a. That's a. Um, that's something we look at with streams in my job. Coarse woody oh, debris. Really? In streams. Oh.
2: Okay. I think the like aquatic. We're doing stream assessments.
0: That goes into the assessment is the percent of course weighted debris in stream. You know, you
1: could look into eventually if you want to work for Neon, doing the aquatics team for Neon because they uh-huh. do a lot of similar stuff.
0: Yeah. That's, that'd be interesting. Mm-hmm. I, probably I probably won't go anywhere for a while. I'm, I'm like, yeah. I'm pulling myself, but I'm getting sucked into this stream restoration thing. That's cool, though. It, um, I took like a like company ecosystem planning restoration has pretty much the main guy that has that like one of the top stream restoration practitioners in the world. He's a geomorphologist and he holds a class, um, about stream quantification. It's a stream quantification tool he created. Wow. And it's like a really expensive class. I got to do it for free. It's really cool. That's like, cool. I learned more doing that yes. than in my college classes. Um, Yeah. You know, it's, it's really neat. Um, and it's a kind of a growing field, it seems like. So I might my career might be heading more towards just restoration in general.
1: That's really um, cool, though. That's important.
0: It, it is cool. It, it's a lot different than I thought. It's a lot of engineering concepts, which I don't, mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about that. The class had engineering concepts. <laughs> so like, I, this is just way over my head. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's really interesting. Um, this stream mitigation restoration field
2: yeah
0: uh, so I, I i see myself continuing on this path we'll yeah see, uh, that's a
1: really cool direction to be going down it's,
0: it's something i never would have con- i didn't know there was a field of stream restoration yeah <laughs> and it's it's, it all seems based very on neat. The, it's all based on the clean water act it's like company
2: yeah.
0: or, or uh department of like uh like the Department of Transportation is some like a a client we have pretty frequently when they cool. do any kind of yeah. br- bridge work or and they have to impact streams and they ha- they, didn't, they didn't have to restore streams and
1: good that's yeah
0: the, that's where the money comes in I guess is really yeah restoring those streams restoring streams to make money is just a cool concept I guess is what I'm trying to say that is
1: very interesting <laughs> uh, <laughs>
0: yeah restoring ecosystems in a, in a right. financially beneficial way is it's kind of fascinating yeah that's kind of cool let's get into some uh gosh mark we've been talking for a long time i I
1: know it's because we haven't caught
0: what what have we missed that you wanted to talk about
1: um i made little notes too yeah yeah. uh oh we went over everything i had like one little ending thing but that's it
0: cool so let's see what i got here So I got like I got like some really ending questions like what's your favorite okay. bird species and like your favorite ecosystem oh and stuff like that.
1: I have a favorite for every category <laughs> and like taxonomic group. All right, well, I have. Let's go,
0: let's go through them all. Let's start with birds.
1: Belted kingfisher. <laughs> unless we're talking about families, then the woodpecker family, Piccady, and then if we're talking about raptors, the crested caracara. Um. <laughs> What else? If we're talking about herons, it's the American bittern. Those are the ones off the top of my head.
0: Uh, my favorite? That bittern photo.
1: Oh, the bittern the photo recently it blew my mind of it it's eating the, the mud snake. Isn't that that was so cool. That was That's amazing. Braz has
0: been, I've seen so many pictures of, of, of uh, egrets and herons eating mud snakes from Brazz's. Really? I've seen at least like 10 now. That's the coolest. That's
2: the figure. first bittern I've seen. Camera.
0: There's no chance you would ever get that intentionally. That's just dumb luck. That's that's just, <laughs>
2: that's
0: I a found point. a mud snake that was predated at Brazos Bend. It was like eaten up in pieces. Oh my
1: gosh. I've never trail. seen a mud snake, not even DOR. Um,
0: but yeah, anyway, your favorite birds.
1: <laughs> oh, that's it for my favorite birds. We could maybe go farther, but I'd have to yeah. think a little harder. Um, favorite, you mentioned favorite ecosystem. Yeah. I, okay. My favorite part about nature that's not like taxa specific is water. So any, like, I know we've talked about this before anywhere where there's streams or creeks or ephemeral wetlands or marsh, or like a spring through the desert or the coast like anything that has some sort of like body of water and not just like a lake or something, you know, like every kind of form it just fascinates me and some oh that brings me to my favorite plant group which is liverworts and if you don't know what a liverwort is you need to look it up right now they are so like specially adapted to water rocks I don't even know how to describe it very well but anywhere where there's like a wet seepage going over like a limestone or a sandstone like crevice or cliffside or just like rock jutting out and you're in a forest where it stays damp and humid there's probably liverworts growing there and they're really cool and and super
0: primitive very primitive
1: yes so like evolutionarily primitive they're older than mosses
0: they're just incredible
1: i love liverworts so much yeah um Those are all my favorites that I can think of right now.
0: Awesome. Do you have any public service announcements?
1: Yes, I do actually.
0: Encouraging remarks to end on here. Positive, encouraging remarks.
1: Yeah. So I was thinking about this because I knew you were going to ask it. And I need my PSA to be something that I don't necessarily want to say, but that's why I need to say it. So I'm trying am attempting to write a book which i feel like maybe every like author has gone through this period of being like it's so hard to say i'm writing a book right because right. then that like kind of puts you in this box of being like oh shit now i have to finish this book
0: yeah i, because I
1: said it. i was writing a book <laughs> <Right>. so <laughs> i'm still at that point where i'm Talk saying on the a- public record now yeah, I know. That's why I'm forcing myself to say it right, so good, that good.
0: I will I see what be more you're doing. Now. I see what you're doing. Yeah. Now.
1: So, my book is, I want to let's put parentheses, hopefully, going to be it's nonfiction and it's going to be about like my perspective of the earth. But yeah. in order to, I guess, motivate people to rethink their perspective about the earth and about our role as humans as a species in it how we interact with the earth how ecology works and just little things like that that well i guess those are big things but then also littler things like micro ecosystems within a rotting log and like the little world that's Mm -hmm. within a clump of moss and things like that like the changing seasons and mm-hmm. stuff like that, just to like get you rethinking about how everything works in order to like regain curiosity yeah. and then passion. So like all of this stuff, like education and curiosity has to happen and then passion, and then we can make a change. Right. And so that's kind of my goal is to like help fuel and that.
0: Like avoid jargon, like technical jargon. Really
1: yes. exactly. So I really that. like i can write scientifically pretty well because my brain works logically but i also really enjoy creative writing so it's very like prose like makes things sound magical that's my
0: goal at least that's awesome yeah i think that's a i think it's a good ending point thanks so much lark glad we can finally get this done
1: Yeah, I know it's been so long. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, we'll we'll, uh, hopefully get back out in the field together at some point this year.
1: Yes, I'll take you exploring through the Appalachians.
0: Yeah. Well, before we leave, do you want to put your uh, talk about your Instagram username where people can find you? Yeah, media and stuff.
1: Um. So my name is Lark Heston, and I'm the only Lark Heston ever. So it's not hard (laughs) to find me. But my actual handle is uh let's see i changed it last year i think it's lark underscore like the bird
0: okay i liked yeah. your name before lark lark the bird
1: lark the bird wasn't that i just before? It, that was what it was okay. i just felt like it, <laughs> it was what i made in high school i got you. and i i, I didn't feel like yeah i needed a little bit of a change lark you. like the bird sounded a little less high school
0: that's good stuff i've been meaning to uh to end on on people giving their socials out, so
1: oh yeah yeah, well, in bio is is good too. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right, Lark, uh, you can stick around, we can chat after, but I'm gonna go and end okay. it here. Thanks so much.
1: Sounds good, thank you.
0: All right, see you later.
1: Bye.